0: Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death Good morning. If you would like a loose approximation of this sermon, if you raise your hand, Peter will be happy to bring you a copy. As I stood on the porch, I could see through the screen door that there was a large dinner party taking place. I had been invited to that dinner. I was supposed to be sitting at that table. I had been knocking on the door for some time before the housekeeper finally came and opened it. As I stood there, confronted by a bewildered and belligerent housekeeper, I thought that perhaps Mr. Walker had forgotten to tell her that I was coming. She was quite insistent that all the guests were already there and the dinner was progressing quite nicely without me. Thank you. Just then, Mr. Walker came to the door. Mark, he said, welcome. I smiled condescendingly at the housekeeper. We thought you were coming next week, Mr. Walker said, but now that you're here, please do come in and join us. The housekeeper derisively smiled back at me. I was a student missionary in Tanzania, East Africa, in the mid-1970s. The country had nationalized all of the private schools, however, they still allowed teachers to come in and teach one Bible class a week to the students who belonged to their denomination. I was teaching Bible classes to the Adventist students in the public high schools around Moshi, at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. The man who was teaching the Anglican students, Mr. Walker, had invited me to his home for Sunday dinner. I was mortified. Had I really come on the wrong day? If so, despite their generous offer, I was really not welcome here, at least not now. I was so embarrassed, but it was to get worse. Jesus was not welcome here. Joseph, his mother's fiancé, was not initially pleased when he learned that Jesus was coming. The religious leaders of Israel were not pleased when they were reminded by foreigners that they should have been expecting him. The king's instinctive response when learning about him was to kill him. From what we know about his brothers and sisters, those that were Joseph's older children, they didn't want him either. He had already tarnished the family name before he had even been born. He was not wanted at the inn in Bethlehem. And even though the shepherds and the wise men welcomed and worshipped him, they were startled by the miserable surroundings in which they found him. And having watched at least one pregnant woman with her first pregnancy as she threw up night after night into the toilet, and knowing that Mary was the type to mull things over in her mind, I would hazard a sanctified guess that there were times when even she was not so sure she wanted this miraculous child. Perhaps this is one of the reasons she went to visit her relative, Elizabeth. In the Daily Walk this week, we inadequately attempted to cover the who, what, when, where, and how of the Incarnation. Today, let's talk about the why. To understand why Christ became incarnate, we have to first understand the problem that was being addressed. Sin was loose in the universe, and it was threatening the very survival and freedom of God's creatures, both those who had sinned and those who had yet unfallen. A crisis had arrived in the government of God, and only God could address it. The fallen angels had lost both the desire and the capacity to respond to God's love. But mankind could still be saved if they could be brought back into a trusting relationship with God. But they needed first to see His true character before they would trust. John 3.16, probably the most famous of all Bible verses, begins to explain why he came. I like to take the first part of the text from the Passion Translation and the second part from the New Life Version. It then reads like this, For this is how much God loved the world. He gave his one and only unique Son as a gift. Whoever puts his trust in God's Son will not be lost, but will have life that lasts forever. To many Christians, this is the whole sum of the gospel. God loved us so much that he gave Jesus to die for our sins so that we can have eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his Son. But the father was reluctant to send his son. When I was a teenager, I was not terribly impressed that God had sent Jesus. I even asked one of my Bible teachers about just how loving it was to send somebody else to die. He said something like, Just wait until you have a son of your own. And I thought, yeah, right, but still. And then one day, probably as a class assignment, I read the chapter on the plan of salvation in Ellen White's book, Early Writings. And I found this. Sorrow filled heaven as it was realized that man was lost and that the world which God had created was to be filled with mortals doomed to misery, sickness, and death. And there was no escape for the offender. Soon I saw Jesus approach the exceeding bright light which enshrouded the Father. Said my accompanying angel, He is in close converse with his Father. Three times he was shut in by the glorious light about the Father. And the third time, when he came out, he made known to the angelic host that a way of escape had been made for lost man. He told them that he had been pleading with the Father and had offered to take his life as ransom, to take the sentence of death upon himself, that through him man might find pardon. Said the angel, Think ye that the Father yielded up his dearly beloved Son without a struggle? No, no. It was even a struggle with God of heaven, whether to let guilty man perish or to give his beloved Son to die for him. For some reason that really impressed me. Not only does it appear that the members of the Godhead have discussions, sometimes maybe even actual differences of opinion, but God the Father struggled over whether or not the lives of human beings were worthy of the suffering of His Son. It was no trivial decision, for God so loved His Son that He struggled over whether he loved the world enough that he should give him so that everyone who trusted in him might have eternal life. I also learned in early writings that at first the unfallen angels could not rejoice when they heard of the plan of salvation, for their commander concealed nothing from them out of love for him, they prostrated themselves before him and offered their lives instead of his. Adam and Eve also did not initially want Christ to go through the sacrifice for them. When they learned about the suffering that Christ was going to go through, they too pleaded that the penalty might not fall upon him whose love had been the source of of all their joy, Rather, let it descend on them and their posterity, you and me. As Christ gave the promise to Adam and Eve and explained the sentence against Satan in the garden, Satan knew that his work of depraving human nature would be interrupted, that by some means man would be enabled to resist his power. But when they heard the rest of the plan of salvation, Satan and his angels rejoiced. Satan, with his angels, knew that he thought that he could cause man's fall and then pull down the Son of God from his exalted position. He told his angels that when Jesus should take fallen man's nature, he could overpower him and hinder the accomplishment of the plan of salvation. So then, as we look at the Incarnation, the Incarnation of Christ and the plan of salvation, we see that God the Father wasn't readily convinced that he should send his Son. The fallen angels, unfallen angels, did not want him to go. Adam and Eve said they would rather die than have him come. Most of the humans with whom he came in contact didn't want him around, and Satan and his angels rejoiced. Clearly, there was a crisis. When I was in high school in India, if someone jumped up and ran out of the classroom during class, no one said anything or asked any questions. We all knew what was happening. Now, some of you have complained that I tend to be too graphic in my descriptions of bodily functions. So let me see if I can explain what was happening in a manner that is appropriate for this place and this audience. In the human digestive tract, smooth muscle contracts in sequence to produce a wave which propels a ball of food along the tract in an anterograde or downstream direction. This usually happens in a methodical, well-timed process over several hours. Occasionally, however, it happens all at once in a very rapid fashion which is almost explosive and can be a rather painful process. When we students jumped up in class and ran out of the classroom, our digestive tracts had suddenly sent us an alarming signal telling us that we currently were sitting in the wrong place. Anyway, as I sat at the walker's dinner table, eating what was left of the salad and mashed potatoes, I was suddenly struck by a familiar sensation that vividly reminded me of those Indian classrooms. I needed to be sitting somewhere else now. There is no sophisticated or polite way to ask your hostess where the restroom is when you are sitting at someone's dining room table. Especially if you're in a hurry. This was really, really bad, but it got worse. This week we celebrated the birth of Jesus. But when the light, when the right time finally came, God sent his own son. He came as the son of a human mother and lived under the Jewish law redeem those who were under the law so that we might become God's children. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. He had been invited. The prophets looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, as did the religious leaders and the people of his day. It was a constant prayer of the Jewish nation. But as John 1.11 says in the Message Bible, He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. Or as John says later, Light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. It was the right time, it was the right country, but he was the wrong one. He was not the one for whom they had been waiting. His people were looking for a conquering king. They wanted to defeat the Romans and get back to the glory they had had with Kings David and Solomon. They didn't want or feel a need for God. They believed they had God boxed up nicely in the temple and controlled through their ceremonies and rituals. What they wanted was power. But Jesus had not come to be an earthly king. He had come to reveal the character of his Father to sinners and to unfallen beings alike. The salvation of the sinners and the security of the unfallen universe depended on a clear revelation of God and only one who was equal with God could adequately fulfill the task. He came to answer the charges that had been made by Satan against the methods and motives of God and his government. Christ was the Messiah. He was God with us. But he was not what we humans wanted. He had been invited, but he was not welcome. Mrs. Walker kindly showed me where the restroom was. Thankfully, it was very close, in the hallway just off the dining room. However, I soon realized that there is a potential problem with having the restroom so close to the dining room full of guests. I think every culture makes jokes about the noises that come from restrooms. But these were not just noises. These were angry paroxysms of reverberating explosions. I knew this would be seen as vulgar, discourteous, and disrespectful, but it was far beyond my control. Outside in the dining room, I heard Mrs. Walker quietly get up from her chair and close the door between the dining room and the hallway. I wished I could die. I felt I might, in fact, be dying. When Jesus mingled with the publicans and the tax collectors, when he forgave the sinners and the prostitutes, when he threw the money changers out of the temple, when he touched lepers to heal them, and when he disregarded the man-made laws of the religious leaders, he was seen as being discourteous, disrespectful, even vulgar. But Jesus hadn't come to win a popularity contest or to gain subjects for an earthly kingdom. He had cosmic matters with which to deal. He had veiled his glory in the human body because if he had come in the original glory that he had in heaven, he would have destroyed the people with whom he came to communicate, for sin cannot survive in that unveiled glory. He had also come as a human to answer Satan's accusations that humans couldn't keep God's law. Relying completely on his Father's power and using none of his own divine capacity, Jesus did perfectly keep the law the law of God, the law of love, by which the universe is ruled. 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5 describe Jesus' character perfectly. Christ was patient. Christ was kind. Christ was not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Christ did not insist on his own way. He was not irritable or resentful. He did not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoiced in the truth. He was full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he is our great example. But Satan's greatest charge was that God was a liar that he couldn't be trusted, and that sin did not lead to death. In the Garden of Eden, he told Adam and Eve, you can't trust God. Did he say you would die? You will not die if you sin. If sinners did die, Satan claimed, it was because God killed them. And so Jesus approached the Garden of Gethsemane to answer these accusations. Just as the Father had hesitated three times to allow Christ to go through with the plan of salvation, now Christ begs his Father three times to let this burden pass from him. But always with the caveat, not my will, but thine be done. It was the will of God to save mankind. In the book, The Desire of Ages, Ellen White graphically shows that the death of Christ was not caused by crucifixion, but by the Father separating his life-giving power from his Son. It happened first in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus there fell dying to the ground and would have succumbed if the angel had not come to strengthen him to go out to Calvary, and no one had laid a hand on him. Romans 3:25 and 26 explains why Christ had to die. My favorite translation reads like this, In the fullness of time God showed his Son publicly dying as a means of reconciliation, to take advantage of by faith. This death was to demonstrate God's own righteousness, for in his divine forbearance he had apparently overlooked man's former sins. This was to demonstrate that God himself is righteous and therefore can set right those who have faith in his Son. Jesus did not die of crucifixion. He suffered the wrath of God. God's giving him up, letting him go, separating him from God's life-giving glory. As in the Garden of Gethsemane, as God once again withdrew his life-giving power from Jesus on the cross, Jesus cried out, why are you forsaking me? It was seen by the unfallen universe and by all of us who have eyes to see that sin does indeed lead to death. It is the natural consequence of sin, for Christ was made sin on our behalf. It was not God inflicting pain, torture, or death on the sinner. Pain, torture, was inflicted, however, but not by God. It was inflicted by the best seventh-day Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, Bible-reading, health-reforming Adventists the world has ever seen, who hurried to get the lawgiver into the grave so they could hurry home to keep the law. This too was a revelation to the universe. It revealed that by keeping the law for the wrong reasons, not out of love, but out of a sense of obligation or an attempt to save ourselves, This turns us into creatures who could kill our Creator if we only could. In summary, the Incarnation of Christ was the only way that the freedom of God's creatures could be preserved and their security could be assured. As Ellen White said in Signs of the Times in January 1890, the only plan that could be devised to save the human race was that which called for the Incarnation, humiliation, and crucifixion of the Son of God, the majesty of heaven. After the plan of salvation was devised, Satan could have no ground upon which to found his suggestion that God could care nothing for so insignificant a creature as man. When the object of Christ's mission was obtained, the revelation of God to the world, he announced that his work was accomplished and that the character of God had been manifest to man. Although I occasionally saw Mr. Walker after that Sunday dinner experience and we exchanged pleasantries, I was never invited back again for dinner. The Adventist view of the great controversy is unique but most Christians believe there is a great conflict going on in the hearts and minds of all of us human beings. Christ stands at the door and knocks, patiently waiting for us to respond. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him. We can be filled with the Spirit of God. The Incarnation continues.